Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Andrew Mason. Good morning. Nate Hopkins. Hello, hello. Dave Kamira. Hey, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Olivier Lacan. Hello. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Now, do you want to just uh, remind people who you are? We haven't had John for a while. That's true. So I'm a French person. I originally come from Paris, France. I moved to the US when I was, I don't know, in my 20s uh, to learn more about how to make websites and eventually ended up at Code School where I made websites. <laughs> and, uh, and then basically I've been running and maintaining Code School for years until it was acquired by Pluralsight where I work now doing interactive uh, education stuff uh, for people who like to learn web things. Nice. And uh, we had some discussion before the, the call, but yeah, Pluralsight's a, a local company, at least to me, in Utah. And it, it was interesting when it got acquired, yeah, just to see where they would go with it. And it sounds like, just from talking to you, as a little bit of setup, and then you can dive us into this, is that uh, they've kind of sunsetted Code School itself. It sounds like they're still doing the content, but they're not using the platform anymore. Right. Um, do you want to just uh, give us a rundown of our topic here? It's the life and death of a Rails app. Yeah. So essentially, it's kind of, it's kind of talking about the, the the whole spectrum of when you create a Rails app or any app, really. When you get excited about a technology, say you're playing with an Elixir or any other technology like that, and you you start building it, the the excite the initial excitement and all the kind of like ooh dependency shelf, like picking all the things and the candy jars and everything, and then when it starts actually getting customers and when it starts getting traction and scaling issues and people scaling issues and eventually either you're successful or you're not success- successful if you happen to be successful. Either you stay independent or you get acquired. And when you get acquired, there's a lot of things you think are going to be simpler. And of course, they're not. And either you stick around as kind of like a part of the thing that acquired you as an app, you integrate, which is a whole, a whole technical you know, uh, minefield, or you just become completely ingested in the new thing. Uh, which is eventually what happened to us. I think it took two years. So there's, there's just so many people things and technical things that can be discussed, but most, mostly it's just like this idea that we, we always plan for the wrong things. We're always like expecting like web scale is going to be the problem or uh, that you know, uh, anything that's not actually the real problem, which is usually people problem and uh, just like the churn and the uh, technical debt and things like that. And then also the, the end of it. Like you just never plan for that. And for user privacy, for instance, there's a lot of problems, especially recently with GDPR, where when you close an app or you close a company, you have this treasured chest of privacy data that uh, you're supposed to do things with uh, now. 
And it used to be much simpler. Just like sell it to someone if you're not moral. If you're moral, you try to safeguard it and put it somewhere safe. But if you get hacked, what happens? You know, a lot of, a lot of data breaches happen like that because people put stuff away and forgot to lock it nicely. So yeah, lots of stuff like that. Interesting. A few other ways that I've seen this play out too are, I mean, like Twitter, when they switched over to Scala, moved a lot of stuff off of Rails, you know, for, for different performance and scalability issues. And so that was kind of a rewrite. I've seen companies kind of peel pieces off because it's cheaper to run it in the cloud in different ways. You know, so there are a lot of different things that people are concerned with. And I think also, just to your point, um, when we get started with a Ruby on Rails app, I think a lot of times we don't think ahead just to the fact that eventually the current version of Rails is going to become obsolete, right? And so... Way sooner than later. Right. And so all of a sudden, you know, we've, we've got to update it one way or the other. And so I've, I've talked to a bunch of companies where they didn't plan for, oh, we've got to upgrade to Rails 4. And then all of a sudden, they've got a Rails 3 app, they've got to upgrade to Rails 5. And so they've got to upgrade and then upgrade again and then update all the gems. And so, yeah, this planning thing turns out to be a nightmare in some ways. But at the same time, I wonder, is there is there really a good way to plan ahead for the things that are going to die off in your app or for your app to die off? It's tricky. I don't know if anybody has an opinion, but for, for us, it was really tricky to plan ahead because every time we predicted as programmers, we're so bad at predicting everything. We make estimates that are completely lies and we know it and we try to make them better lies, but not like truth. It's super hard. So I think that for like you give an example of like upgrading dependencies. Let me tell you how Code School, the course runner app that had interactive like courses released every month worked. Every month we would make a new Rails app that was the course. We would skin it, have our front end team design HTML, CSS, JavaScript everything for that app, if there was improvements to the way that we were handling for, like server-side front-end uh, front stuff, we would make those improvements in the app, at least at first. And then we would release a whole new app that was independent, talk to the you know, main web server, like the main codeschool.com server with OAuth and APIs and uh, synchronous messaging and stuff like that. Which means that within a few months of being operating as a subscription-based company, we had 20 or so Rails apps with different versions. Some of them were still happy about that. Beta versions of Rails that were running completely different like security, ver- like you know, patch versions or, or even minor versions of, of Ruby and Rails. So it's just like, those are the kinds of things that you can't necessarily plan for a lot of other things, but <laughs> the kind of decisions where moving fast and breaking things kind of mindsets quickly, quickly, you can see if you're, you look around the, the field and kind of take a breather for a second, you can see, oh crap, this is not going to work. Like within a few months, reassessing is kind of like this thing of like, yeah, the, the speed of iteration quickly becomes where, where basically to me, it's like putting everything on a credit card. That's exactly how I picture it. Like doing this kind of stuff is like, oh, you have a 17 or 18% interest rate. And it's cool because you have this $20,000 credit limit, but that's going to run out real quick. So yeah, I don't know. Planning is hard. GitHub kind of has a similar story where they forked Rails and kind of had a custom flavor of it for several years. And then finally have just got back onto the main line of, of Rails release, which is cool because now they can contribute back to the framework, right? 
And that's actually Eileen, uh, Eileen Yushatel and uh, Aaron Patterson working on that a bunch. And they they gave a talk, or she gave a talk at RailsConf or RubyConf, or I think it was RailsConf, RailsConf right? And that talk tells you everything, right? It's it's just three sporadically with you know patchy involvement from a bunch of different people. It's essentially a three year effort to, or even more sometimes, just to get back to you're not that special, right? Yeah. And you can contribute back. And I think that's the situation that we find a lot of ourselves in. It's, you know, we read a blog article or we see something new and cool. And we're like, hey, I could use that in my application. And so now you have your standard, you know, very close to the Rails core application. And now you're diverging a bit, whether it's adding in a gem or a client-side framework or some other kind of infrastructure or architecture like microservices or Lambda functions, you start branching out, or in your case, creating a separate app for each instance or product that you're doing. And it's going to complicate everything. Maybe not today. Maybe today you saved a few hours, but you're going to end up costing yourself many, many more hours in the long run. And I think that's where technical debt can eventually cause an application to die. If you're not maintaining it, if you diverge so much that now the application is almost unmaintainable because it's such a mess, now those original people who implemented those ideas are gone. Now you have a new group of people coming in and they have like very little idea of its architecture. Where if you stick to the Rails core on something, then you're going to be able to bring in any Rails developer, no matter who it is, and then they're going to be able to look at the application, look at your gem file, look at your routes, look at you know some of the other things that you have going on, and they're going to be able to get to production or you know start coding on it really quickly. And so I've made this mistake many times where I thought that oh I have this very special use case, and so I tried doing something and it always comes back to bite me. Yeah. So recently in the past year I've been on this real kick where. It's a question, more or less, is your Rails application maintainable? And I think that if you can confidently say yes, then you're going to be able to easily just bump the Rails version, do a bundle update on your application, run your tests, go to Rails diff, and then see the differences between the configuration files from your current Rails application version and the new one. And then everything is just going to work. Updating Rails should not be a hard process. We make it hard through the decisions that we've made over time. Yeah, and it's also like the, when you're in the initial startup phase, it's very tricky because you're any longer than 15-minute problem solve feels like you're spending so much money that you don't have. And that's the infancy stage, which is very like, you think uh, it's, it's like you're a predator and you're trying to find something to eat because you're going to die of starvation. It, it seems very dire. So you make really, really bad. I mean, it's the, it, there's a, a similar problem with the poverty in general. It's just like when you're impoverished or you're hungry, your brain doesn't have the, the, the same capacity to make like long, longer term, safer, stable decisions. It's not because you're stupid. It's because it's, you're in a bad setup in context. We had the same problem with people. Like you just mentioned, people coming in. We had people coming out. Because startups, by very nature, just you, people leave all the time because they uh, usually people who start things are not great at finishing them. It's kind of sound like a slight dig, but that's just a natural thing. A lot of people were like, woo, super excited and have tons of energy at the beginning. They don't really like the, the slog of maintaining things. And as you said, 
if they customize everything, if they fork a bunch of gems, if they do all that stuff, then it's a nightmare. It, but it seems like it makes sense during the time. And there's moments during the Ruby and Rails development cycles where, or even any gem cycle, you're like, oh God, this is not moving. Like there's not, it's not, they're not doing what I want. So I want them to upgrade. I want them to deprecate this other thing. I don't want them to use jQuery anymore. And you're like, oh, just fork it. Because literally forked it. I don't want to deal with this. And that's the moment that it's hard. Like what you just said is very wise. But during these phases, these kind of like desert crossings or like the slow slumps in development of Rails or Ruby or anything, you're like, oh, screw it. I'll just fork it. Yeah, everybody that starts a project and, and experiences that that pain and making some of those rash decisions should be forced to stay at a company long enough to deal with it. <laughs> oh, hi! I wish. And you know, just rewrite it in Elixir, right, Nate? <laughs> yeah. You know, I know I've said this a few times, but I think my experience in Rails projects specifically is rather unique because I'm going to hit my 10-year anniversary with the same job next month. And so I've had to live through all of the horrible decisions that I've made. And then looking back at those decisions, I'm like, wow, I cannot believe this idiot implemented something this way. Like, who the hell would decide to store images in the database? Why did you think that was a good idea? And, you know, at the time, it was because like, well, we have multiple web servers, so they need to be able to all hit the same images. And then, you know, like, well, why don't you just use something like S3 or some cloud storage? Like, well, that's going to be so many hoops I have to jump through because my bosses are going to, you know, require a vendor relationship and this kind of thing. So I'm like, the images are only 10 kilobytes each. That's not a big deal. Just store them in the database. Well, Seven years later, that database table is over 30 gigabytes and it just has a user ID and an image. There's nothing much in there, but it just got really utilized. So now it's like, crap, what do we do? Now we had to convert all these Base64s back into a JPEG or a PNG and then upload that to S3 and then create some tieback into the Rails app. So it's a mess. But at the time, it was a decision because I was too lazy to go to management and request access to this resource to do it properly. So it made sense at the time, right? Even if you like slap on yourself, like back in the back in time, and you, tr- you travel, it's just like, oh, that made sense back in time. This is why like commits are a big deal to me, and 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 the, the reason why I think anybody with long tenure values commits so heavily is that whenever someone leaves, and you, at least you have a commit, you can be like, okay, well, I hate you, but at least I understand why you did this. And usually it's you, which means tenure is humbling because quickly, like within a year, you'll see commits. You're like, why? Why is it like that? And it's you in that thing you just described because you're like, I'm stuck. This is my wall. I have to deal with this thing. And I'm doing the best with the tools that I have. Yeah, but it's just one of those examples where I diverged from the best practices route. And it worked at the time and it was great. And it was because it was a business need, or at least I justified it as a business need. And then many years down the road, it's like, okay, it's just going to be easier to rewrite this application or it's going to be easier to do you know, something else than to have to continue to maintain this thing because it was not maintainable. It didn't fit into this little paradigm of you know, being able to just run bundle update, run your tests, and then do Rails diff to see the changes. 
you know, I've overcomplicated its architecture through poor decision. So I'd like to fold this kind of technical story back into the narrative that Oliver started with, with Code School being acquired. With, and, and it sounds like you maybe had some of these architectural, uh, some of this arch- architectural complexity uh, baked into Code School. What was the team dynamic like? So at the time of the acquisition, we had the, my favorite team I've ever had. Like it was the best structure of a team I think I've ever had. At the time, we had a team non-computer scientists, and then the two women. One of them was a PhD candidate in um, physics uh, who had dropped out for because it was driving her crazy that she couldn't get results. Like she wanted feedback, which sounds like a programmer problem. And then uh, the other Katie Delphin, who's now at GitHub, actually, is just like this magic like context monster who just like absorbed context. She was a great team lead, basically. She had the, the, the computer science knowledge and everything. But more, more importantly, she was very good at like five steps ahead thinking. Like, you, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And so we had managed to build a system that was, despite the fact that, yeah, we had limitations because of technical debt and the things Dave talked about where we, at the time, vaguely remembering, but we had like roughly three to five million users, not constantly. And then subscribers, uh, I, I vaguely remember those numbers, but I think we had like 20,000 like paid subscribers or something like that. So it wasn't gigantic, but it, you know, there's a lot of things to do and often not enough time to do them. So we had to like cut and prioritize and someone had to roll into marketing development occasionally. A bunch of people are doing billing work, a bunch of people are doing integration work. And then someone like me had to be doing technical debt stuff. So Ruby upgrades, longer running Rails upgrades, longer running everything before both Gymnasium and which doesn't exist anymore, but has been rolled into GitLab and uh, Dependabot existed, which makes it way easier to deal with these things. Because as I don't know if it was Dave that mentioned that, it's just like constantly be upgrading was uh, a thing that I was somehow to think that a human was doing this. It just sounds like such a waste of time. All these PRs that are open by Dependabot to update your dependencies are just like magical. <laughs> so much. So yeah, that was yeah. the dynamic at the time. You got to cut yourself some slack. I mean, with a team of four with 20,000 paying subscribers and moving, like managing the entire business, it's, it's easy to see why some poor decisions might get made, right? Yes, absolutely. Also, this is the kicker that I didn't mention is that originally CodeSchool built its own billing system. It wasn't CodeSchool, it was EnvyLab, so I blame them, but they're, they're nice people. They just planned to reuse it with customers and they never did, I think. And so we had to maintain and move off of that to a semi, like Stripe has Stripe subscription now where it manages the, the whole life cycle stuff, but it didn't do that before. So we had to still build that like everyone else and migrate everything and I think that was the year we got acquired was the year we did that. So we did all that work and then we got acquired. And of course, the people who acquired us were like, oh, we have this other subscription vendor. You know, what, I'm curious, uh, kind of the, the specifics to the acquisition in terms of what the intent was, what you thought was going to happen versus what actually happened. I think I'm speaking for founders and, and, and leadership in, in that sense. Uh, I think for every SaaS, a software as a service company, or even content educational company, there's always that fear that there's always the driving fear, which is um, you don't have enough content. People stick around to drive up the li- lifetime value of a customer. So I think our LTV was around, I, I vaguely remember, so this is probably wrong, 
but I think $80, $80. So it's like, it's really hard to deal with those facts. When you see them, they're terrifying. This is the data you gather makes you, you fear of death is not just vague. It's like you have numbers for each of those things. You know that if in a month more people cancel than the previous month, and that trend changes in any significant way, you know that in six months payroll is going to black out. Like it's it you know there's it's really and then for people who love what they do and have a team that's fairly like well adjusted and there's not too much drama and it's 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 fairly you know a healthy job. It's terrifying to see people that you consider e- even like good friends or acquaintances that you like to see them in the bullseye of that reality. So I think that when the market started getting bigger and bigger and people getting acquired left and right and things like that, you kind of see like small producers like PeepCode and other people were acquired by, by Pluralsight. Others were acquired by other companies like that. You could see that consolidation happening in, in that like tech learning sphere. You're thinking, I think the, the thinking becomes like, well, either we're going to get bought out by someone or they're going to drown us out by producing more content, pouring more money in it. We were kind of in the high quality, compelling, interactive content sphere, which few people competed in, but they had more marketing, they had more everything, they were louder. So we could get drowned out, I think was the fear. And I think the acquisition came after talking to several suitors, more as a, okay, well, we kind of fit in because they don't do that, right? They don't do interactive stuff. Pluralsight is very much like video training, at least for many years, it's, it's, it's acquired and, and rolled into its service multiple kind of like training mentoring services and things like that that are more tailor uh, made stuff and enterprise specific stuff. But at the time, it was similar to the other offerings out there. And it was also kind of restricted to a subset of the technology space, which is Microsoft focused. And we were doing Ruby, Node, you know, a bunch of other exciting hot technologies uh, and front end stuff and, and things like that. So I think they saw us as kind of like a differentiating factor. And for a while, they used us as a kind of like a, a premium offering. They, you, enterprise companies would would get that on top, a little cherry on top with Code School. And originally, there's no plans. And this is the thing where a lot of people think like, oh, they said it would stay around, but it didn't. Most companies they had acquired, it's hard to integrate. So they'd rather have it as a separate service. Like at least for whoever's manager and leadership at the time, they're like, oh God, no, we don't want to do that. So hard to do migrations. I, I spent six months of my life doing a, a customer migration with like Stripe and stuff like that. It was a, it was horrible. Even if it's complicated to have two stacks or something like that, which is tricky, they'd rather keep it around and see what happens. The problem is everything shifts when you get acquired. All of the that's the thing I try to talk about in the in the talk is that the things that you were scared of are not there anymore, and then you're scared of different things. So instead of running out of money, which was the driving fear you start fearing, oh, um, we don't know this leadership. And if the leadership changes, the the agreements we've made with the previous leadership, there's no guarantee. And also like what, like holding ourselves accountable when you're a startup and you're starved for, you know, sustainability, you make decisions that are more short term and you're, and when you're suddenly allowed to make more longer term decisions, you get kind of cocky. Like you start doing things like, oh, we're going to merge our engineering teams or we're going to, because I don't know, let's try that. And we're going to produce twice the amount of courses, uh, even though we're about, you know, kind of like deep content and compelling content. We took a long time with every topic. We took like a month to make every course. We spent lots of money making very, very like, 
compact and dense and uh, like, you know, something that can kick, kick you, uh, kickstart you very, very quickly. Not long, you know, 10 hour courses that you have to watch through. So we started kind of trying things and many of those things didn't work. And I kind of lost momentum. And then it started making more sense for us to just be integrated into the ecosystem more to, you know, through the years. And this is what happens to a lot of acquisitions where you lose the momentum because all of the parameters change. Even if you, even if you say nothing will change, uh, we have assurances, uh, leaderships loves what we do. And there, I think when we were acquired, that's the last thing I'll say, I think there were a handful, like dozens of developer at Pluralsight. And we had, our engineering team was like at least twice or three times the size of their engineering team because they produced video content stuff. So they had, they had no complicated, you know, evaluation of code stuff to deal with. And also they were like heavily focused on enterprise stuff. So they did a lot more stuff there. Sorry, that was long. Yeah, so that actually kind of gets into like some of our, our conversation before uh, podcast started, which is how do you plan for this stuff? Because you had mentioned that, that uh, oftentimes we don't think about what it means to shut down a, a product, um, even if it's just an internal app, right? But a lot of the stuff, it's like you said, you can't foresee it. So how do you plan for it? To me, the, the, the great thing to do is to think about the things you don't need right now. A lot of us, a lot of developers, programmers, and, and web developers, uh, we're kind of hoarders. Like we like to have all the logs. We ha- like to have, uh, just in case, we're going to have this extra thing. Some of us are not like that, but thankfully, yeah, there's a few different people. But uh, the perfect example that I, that I used in the, in the talk that I gave was device. Very useful tool, gets you started super fast. You have user authentication, uh, registration, confirmation. If you use it, you should use it. Uh, when you get acquired and you have not confirmed any of the emails you have in your database, that sucks. But there's a, a module in device that I, for a very long time was included by default called Trackable. What Trackable does is log the IP address of the person who signs in with that user account, the last IP address, the current IP address, when they signed in, when the last time they signed in was, and then often people tack on what was the G, um, GOIP resolution of that? What was the country associated with the IP that this, this person came from? That is, I mean, for, for still to this day, I think it's not considered PII, personally identifiable information by the US government or the US entities uh, when it comes to that. But in Europe, it is. So your IP is a piece of private information because you can determine a lot of things based on someone's IP. Uh, their email address and everything. You can you can take that metadata and make a, a very interesting story of where they were, when, why, and all that stuff. And so when I gave the talk, I think it was in April 2018. Yeah. Devise had a uh, little no mention of GDPR, which is the European uh, privacy regulation stuff that came into uh, effect literally the day uh, Code School shut down, which kind of tells you a little bit. And I found out just doing research before this, uh, this, uh, this call, that device 4.5.0 was released on August 15, 2018 and removed trackable as a default module, which is great because unless you have a very, very good reason to have the IP address of the person who signed in for your service because you're doing, I don't know, you're, you're having like massive fraud signups or stuff like that or people are hammering, DDoSing your service, you should not be holding this data. And this is one of those things where, which is, you can do a review right now of the things you're using. I have a quick other example. Uh, one of our uh, founders 
saw the Obama campaign did this really smart thing where when people were signing up for donations and they were failing to sign up or they were failing to sign in, there was patterns to how they failed to sign in. So they, they would save any failed sign-in attempt form submissions or failed uh, registration attempt form submissions. I might be misremembering. And they would literally just run some data against that and figure out, okay, what are the patterns of people who failed to sign in or failed to sign up? And then they would just analyze that data and then, oh, okay, well, put some JavaScript in there and say like, no, you meant Gmail, not Gmail. And that way you get a proper sign up because the email actually is the correct email. And you know, there's a, there's a few different end things that allow you to do that. We did that and we forgot about it because the person who set it up for, just left the company. And so I found a database table that had, oh, I don't even know, like 150 million rows of sign-in attempts with some PII, some of it, that I didn't want to have. And it was a quick conversation with my team lead, uh, Thomas Meeks. I think I remember saying like, do you know about this? Why do we do this? Have we ever used it? Nope, nope, nope. Can I get rid of it? Truncate, bye. Cool, awesome. I don't have to deal with it. I'm not responsible for it. Essentially, it's just, it's just like, it's not not my job. It's more like, I do not want to be liable for this stuff. And I think if, if more people who build apps thought of liability as a vector of concern, they'd be, they'd be a little bit more thrifty with the stuff that they gather. Yeah, the default uh, module and devices, uh, I mean, you just slap gems in and who knows sometimes what they're doing, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then there's also sometimes where, you know, if you need to store the personal information, there are some justifications for it, especially if you're taking in payments from people where I've been in a situation on Drift and Ruby where someone has disputed a charge and that's not cheap, you know, especially if I'm only charging $15 a month, the charge that Stripe charges me is $15 plus that fee that gets returned. So, I mean, that's almost a two times hit. And if I'm able to provide that, okay, this is the IP address that this person used on the credit card to sign up at. And then here I have records where they have downloaded this video, this video, and this video with the same IP address. Now I have a more legitimate case to defend myself on that chargeback. That's but it, it's something that you have to be careful on because, you know, what, what is the statute of limitations for a chargeback? You know, if a 30-day window passes, then that data that's 31 days old, do I need to keep it? You know, yes. or can I truncate it? And so I put in a psychic cron job that will basically go through and it'll remove all that historical data that I don't no longer need. There you go. That's exactly the kind of stuff that we rarely think we have time to do this when we're building a business. And then really, it's not that much work to clean up after ourselves. It's actually far easier to do it iteratively, like you're, you're saying, in a cron job than at the very end when you realize, oh crap, I have all this data. And when a user cancels, for instance, for us, before the migration, we told people, hey, we're going to migrate. You're going to get a Pluralsight account unless you don't want one. If you want to just wipe your data, just send us, a, send us a, a little request in this thing and you will, we will delete everything. That, you have to be able to guarantee that. And GDPR enforcement can come after you and say, prove to us that you've deleted all that data. Which, and you can take it out of the database, but still have logs. Backups. Backups yeah. and, and your log files and backups of the logs. Yeah. It's a nightmare. That's why I think 
having a very good reason, like Dave mentioned, is great. It's it's a, it's better to have the problem first and then and then put it into place rather than assume. Oh, what if we get that problem? It's kind of like turning on all the features. So think a little harder before you just throw in soft delete to your application. <laughs> oh God, this is this is um, very relevant to my life. Yeah. And, you know, I think, Nate, uh, Paranoia, which is a really cool gem for doing a soft delete, that's really useful in certain situations where someone performs something very destructive that they didn't mean to. You know, there's, you know, no matter how many times you give someone the opportunity to warn them, like, hey, what you're doing is very destructive. Once it's done, the data's gone. There's always a case where someone clicked through all those yeses and checkboxes and type in their password to confirm. And then like, oops, I didn't mean to do that. Or I didn't know what it was going to do. Then it's like, you want to service the customer, but then you also want to service your customer's privacies on the other hand. So it's a tricky situation that you get yourself into. So in a lot of situations where I will have a feature like that, there's a warning that, or a disclaimer that, okay, we are able to retrieve the data, most of it. Certain data aspects of it is completely lost. And in this specific case, it would be all of the metadata about the user's PII information or uh, their PII. So any kind of last signed in, sign in counts, IP addresses, all that data would just get scrubbed from the database, but the user accounts you could get back. Otherwise, after 30 days, anything that has a deleted at that's over 30 days old gets removed yeah. or truncated out. I was mentioning this brief, briefly, but uh, I, I use an alternative to the paranoia gem called Discard by, uh, I think, John Hawthorne. Yeah, it uh, also works in GitHub. And it's slightly different. It doesn't hook into as many um, callback cycles. Uh, I think it just like it sets that, that table and it's basically use scopes for everything you need to select if you want to select, and it avoids the kind of like the, the trap of having associations and and um, uh, dependent destroy stuff kind of become soft deleted automatically. It's nice to consider both. I think the soft deletion sounds super easy, and it's always never easy. It's always like there's always a little tiny little thing that you didn't think about. And also, for instance, like loading. I think we had a problem like that in the, in the app that we work on right now where. Yeah, the uh, composite indexes or indices that we were using were not quite optimized for uh, the deleted at column because we thought we had far more deleted at things and removing that index actually sped things up. Like think, think crazy things like that. Anyway. Hmm. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash rogues. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. 
to Dave's point, it's actually kind of funny in, in a sad state or commentary on our on our industry and some of our solutions in the sense that we're we're holding on to a lot of this PII uh, information, kind of not necessarily trying to be malicious about it. It's just there in logs and in database backups. But when we do accidentally really destroy some records, it proves incredibly difficult to to get them back, even though we have all the backups. And this actually talks to a, a, a mention, I think that I, I remember hearing this so much in the 2012 to 2014 era, which was era, which was we're not doctors. So it's fine. If we take down the website, you know, or not, you know, we're just teaching people things. It's not like we're like giving them benefits or, uh, you know, we're not a financial institution like Square, for instance. And that's a great cop out. It's a great way to not be a responsible and adult about like, we do affect people. If someone like took out some time to learn something or they give us their financial data or their PII or something, that it, it is a responsibility. It's, it's a big deal. And even if we don't call ourselves necessarily engineers as in licensed trade, tradespeople engineers, it's a good aspiration to be a little bit more like engineers and doctors than, uh, than just like, dilettante like oh we just make web we're just webmasters we just do do fun things on the side yeah but it takes a convincing argument from like a senior team to get the business to move in that direction when you're struggling for survival right especially in that startup mode when you're you're really fighting with with competitors and you don't know if you're going to make payroll next month it is it is very hard and and sometimes i i think it's good to have those fights though that's another thing that back to the constraints in a way is not having enough money is good in a, in a company. Not having enough time is good. It's a forcing function. You need to be forced to make those arguments. You need to be forced to, to have these, these disagreements with your team where you say, I think we should do this. And the other person says, I think we should do this, uh, th- this other thing. And this is why. And that way... It, it fosters a little bit more, especially when you have a team that's not just a monoculture of a bunch of friends that hired each other after college. Because otherwise, yeah, everyone's going to agree. It's likely that everyone's going to agree. When you start getting different people with different backgrounds and everything, left field, like, here's why you don't take this data. It's great for stalkers. That's, that's a point of view that rarely is seen from white males, for instance. Like, Goala check-ins and uh, and Foursquare check-ins or things like that, where you if you don't think about it from the kind of like a, the bad perspective, kind of like the uh, the attacker or a security researcher perspective, it you do stupid things. Speaking of stupid things, <laughs> there's a I think someone mentioned sunset at the beginning, um, sunsetting. So that's more like jumping to the end, but the uh, the the. The total lack of emotional honesty behind the word sunset to me is a thing that I rail about a lot, which is we are ending, killing, removing, destroying this thing, right? We're not sunsetting it. There's no like, no one's running on a beach in slow motion with like beautiful like pastel colors and everything. No, it's this thing that you loved. And for us, like a perfect example for code school is apparently a ton of schools in Puerto Rico were using code school for um, education stuff. They were using either free courses because we had a ton of free content, and then a ton of boot camps were using our free content as kind of like inverted classroom things where people would go home, do a code school course, a free one, and then they'd, they'd talk about it. And we like kind of it's not really statute statute of limitations, but we when we told people we're going to fold 
code school and turn it off, they were kind of like, what? I mean, I need this. I, I depend on this. Like I, I am a teacher and I'm teaching these kids with this thing. And being kind of wishy-washy about like what we're doing is kind of like a doctor saying like on the, on the bedside, being like, it's not looking good. What do you mean? Like how much time do I have to find another place to do the thing that I do? And I, I just say there's so much of that in this industry, sadly. And I think that it's fine to say, hey, I'm, I moved on. Like there's tons of startup founders that are bored within six months or three years and they want to move on to something else. And how about we start saying that? Like, I think that's fine emotionally to say, I had a ton of fun doing this thing. I mean, it wasn't necessarily my case with Code School, but there's tons of things like open source projects, for instance, where maintainers are like, oh, they hate, they hate the thing that they built. They don't want to deal with it anymore. They're trying to find maintainers. And, and they don't say in public the thing that they say, you know, in conference hallways, which is like, I just, it stresses me out so much every time I get an issue or something like that. Yeah, I'm just sunsetting yeah. involvement. <laughs> I'm walking away in the sunset. I think, as you mentioned, Olivia, it's just life. You know, people die, applications die. You know, it's not a matter of if it's going to happen, it's when is it going to happen. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think how you approach it, you know, to sunset or kill it off, and how you react to it is where the real difference is going to come into play. You know, for the foreseeable future, I plan to keep doing Drift and Ruby as long as I can. But there's going to be a time where time just no longer permits. It either did not generate enough revenue where I could do it full time. And then my kids are growing. You know, I have a two-year-old, four-year-old, and six-year-old. So as they get older, their time is going to be a lot more in demand. So there is eventually going to be an end of life. I don't know if that is three years from now or 10 years from now, but I think it is something that I will have to start thinking about. It's like, okay, once it's done, what am I going to do with all this data? Not only the users, which I would absolutely respect everyone's privacy, but all the video content that I've created. Now I'm going to be hitting 200 episodes this year. And for me, I mean, that's been years and years of my life that I poured into it. And I would hate to see it just kind of die out. But I mean, that's going to be the reality of it. Either the content's going to be stale and old if I'm not maintaining it anymore, or you know, people would have moved on to something else. But it's a real consideration to take. It's a heartbreaker when when you've uh, when you've worked so hard to make content and you you know that some of it's out of date, but it's it can still be a little bit useful, especially when it's free. One of the hardest things for me with the with the shutdown was uh, was try Ruby. So try Ruby was one of my babies, and it was like it was that and try Git. So I, I I wrote try Git with a bunch of people from from Code School and and GitHub in 2012, and it was this thing that just like was infrastructure. It was like oh, a bunch of people, which is like oh, get started, like see if you hate it or if you're terrified of it. There's a great way to show you that it's not that it's not it's bad, but it's not that bad. And try reviews. Likewise, like it's just we we didn't spend that much time maintaining it, but it worked. It was useful. And now I'm glad there are alternatives, but at the time it wasn't quite ready. And likewise, I don't think there's there might be a, a try git alternative. But um, for Ruby, thankfully, there's an open source version, the front end like open source version that's now available on the try uh, on the rubylang.org uh, website. You can get to it. 
but seeing this resource, like this kind of like thing that you know people depend on disappear, or just that you enjoyed writing and you're like you were proud of, is uh, is not that emotionally just sucks. It's just very like ugh, and yeah, but it's okay. Sometimes things yeah. like that go away. So I've been through you know almost celebrating my ten year tenure. But that 10 years, I've been through two company acquisitions. So my company got sold and then it got sold again. So, and I've stuck around with it for almost 10 years through the whole thing. And, you know, there has been some of that loss and application that had spent four years working on. As soon as the new company acquired it, they said day one, all development on new features is going to stop and sales is going to stop on this. It's not a direction we want to go down. And, you know, how I internalize that and my reaction to it is really going to determine the route I go as a developer. You know, I could just rage quit the company and go somewhere else where I'm appreciated. Or I could look back and say, where do I put my value? Where do I put my worth? Is it in the thing that I created? Or was it the experience that I got over the many years learning from my bad decisions, learning how to do something new? And if I can take that away from it, then you reduce your emotional attachment to the actual product because I'm a better person because of that product. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's 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 tricky also because of the kinds of people that tend to work on these early stage or just like young products. But basically, yeah, older older people in the industry tend to have families and kids and you know things like that. And when I say older, I don't mean like older than 20, which is a lot of people. And I think that helps make your focus less, oh my God, this gem that I built or this you know application is the treasure of my life and my sole contribution to the world. When you have kids or you, you have a family, it's easier to move on from that stuff. And I think it's, it's also good to have more people like that in the industry that are just like, that have kids already, that, that, that work in apps and create companies as parents, not as single dudes in a bedroom or in a garage uh, who have no responsibilities other than that and therefore derive every kind of like validation from it. I will say I have never lived through the death of a Rails app because I've been like, I'm so young of a developer, but I had a mentor. And one thing that he taught me that I still find valuable to this day is that you're going to work really, really hard on something. And one day you might have to completely destroy it. And he taught me this like in the worst, like what I thought to be the worst way possible. Like it hurt at the time, but I'm really glad he did this because over time it's really helped. I worked a really long time on this feature. It was very, very, very early in my career and it was not done well at all. But I had worked really hard on it and the fact that I had gotten it to work, I was very proud of it. And I took it to him for code review and he called me up. He's like, look, he's like, this isn't really, this isn't like a good way to do this. And he's like, that's when he gave me the little spiel about you really need to learn that sometimes it's okay it's okay to delete the entire thing. He's like, so right now we're going to delete this entire thing and start over. It's so hard though. I mean, I, I, I still have that problem, even though I'm literally that person. I have destroyed the thing that I worked on creating for years, for like six, seven years. So still now, like I'm still that person who I see people at conferences delete code for kicks, like as a demo. And I'm like, but wait, archive it. Put it somewhere in <laughs> stash. What if you need it later? Just get stash. And I see people, no, 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 we don't. We just get 
git stash pop or whatever command you use to delete a stash, which I don't know. <laughs> and I'm in awe of the kind of distance, right? Like, as you said, like the, the maturity of being like, it's okay. My brain did this. My brain can do this again. Valuing well, your knowledge that you acquired. It actually kind of reminds me of a, a college art class I took where uh, early on in the course, we had to produce 100 pieces of original art in a week. And we brought them and turned them in. And the instructor then proceeded to rip them all apart in front of the class and said that destruction is an act of creation. Oh, wow. That's a hardcore <laughs> version of Andrew's lesson. It was very much a hardcore version. I didn't know my dad taught art because that very much seems like something that my dad has done. When I was young and when I was going off to college, I was writing these cover letters to send off to colleges saying, you know, here, this is who I am and stuff. And he would look at it and then he would just tear it up and say, go do it again. No feedback, no pointers, just tear it up. Or if I was working on some kind of other project or you know something that I was getting his opinion on, he just tear it up and said, do it again. So either you will learn or you will eventually learn that your projects isn't where you should put your self-worth. You should put worth into them. You should care about yes. them. But that's not where your self-worth should get derived from. And even if it's the best thing you've done so far, which it definitely applies to me, you might never do something quite exactly that special, like in the same way, with the same people and the same. That's the hard thing to do with, with any kind of project creatively. It's like, oh, there's tons of things I didn't like, but this was so great. But you'll do other things. And then because you've already done that one thing, you'll infuse a lot of these other things. And this is the joy that I've taken. This is the people joy that I've taken away from the, the, the end of Code School was I've nurtured a, a few people and a few people have nurtured me and we're all like kind of like seeding each other and pieces of the, the spirit of code school and things like Pluralsight, like GitHub actually, like uh, other places. Where, uh, so Joel Taylor, who's on my team, works at TaskRabbit right now. Uh, Katie Delphin's at GitHub. Thomas Meeks is uh, doing independent game development now. So it's like, there's just tons of awesome things happening with all those people and it makes me happy and they're just all around. And they always have this moment where they say, oh, you know, back in the day when we did it like that at Code School, this sucked, but this was awesome. And this is an awesome thing that we did. Often it's about people stuff. And more and more the code stuff disappears. There's a few little triggery things that you're like, oh, we, had a, we, we figured out a way that was nice to do X or Y, but it's rarely the code that's like, oh, this was so great. I wish we had saved it. You know, one of my earliest memories speaking at Code School was Rails for Zombies with Greg Pollock. That was one of my first introductions to Rails, you know, after doing Ruby for a while. And then, I, you know, I just want to give him a little shout out. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. And that's actually how. That was my second Rails tutorial. And I did that Rails for Zombies beta in Orlando at the Orlando Ruby users group. And that's how, I think that was six months or a few months into me learning Rails when I was still kind of like a, a front-end focused web designer type person and still in school. So I did that, that little beta before they actually released Rails for Zombies, I think in the fall of 2010. And then in early 2011, they launched a Code School subscription service. And then at the end of 2011, beginning of 2012, I started at, at Code School. So I, I, I literally learned Rails on Rails for Zombies and then worked on Rails for Zombies. 
So and awesome. a bunch of us did that too. Adam Renzel, who's also at GitHub now, also learned. I badgered him to try Ruby and, and Rails while he was an instructor at Full Sail University where I, where I went to school. And he was, within a few months, he was like good enough. So he made a gem and everything and he started working there. And now he's just like doing super cool stuff. And it's just so satisfying to know that people who just knew nothing, I remember listening to podcasts like this very podcast when I was in school and not understanding anything about MVC, ORMs, you know, web development. And saying to myself, I will probably never understand this because I think the one episode I've listened to of some Ruby on Rails podcast talking about controllers, I remember thinking like, this word makes no sense. I don't understand what a controller does and why it's called a controller. It's not controlling. It's a router. It's routing things. You know, it, 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 as, a, as an English major at the time, that, that's the only qualification I had it used to drive me crazy. And I really, really thought, I'm just going to learn a little bit about whatever this is, but I'm never going to be good at it. And then it's just makes so, it's so weird to see your name and people at conferences going like, oh, I learned Rails from you. Or I learned RSpec from you. Like, what? <laughs> I can definitely sympathize with that because in college, I listened to this podcast all the time. And learned so much, but also knew almost nothing from it. I was like, I don't know what these words mean. They're using all these terms and yada, yada. And now looking back, I know what those words mean. Yep. And now I'm here. So, you know, it's just natural progression, I think. I think it's, it's a useful tool also to do that, especially when you have loss or things disappear or things end, like a Rails app, is to I do this thing called... Um, Time machine. So time machine something. It's like an ego time machine. So you take a time machine, not with you, your person, but just take your ego and how you, your sense of self-worth back six months, back a year, five years, 10 years, and realize this thing you thought impossible, now you do it like on, on a daily basis and it's not even a big deal. And it doesn't even phase you. But it's good to do that because I think, Dave, you're talking about the, the sense of self and how much um, or worth and how much you derive from the work you're currently doing, like what, how much worth you derive from that, or how much worth you put in it. And I think it, it really helps to go back regularly as a kind of like a, a self-care exercise to make sure that you, you acknowledge and, and appreciate how much you've learned and how far you've gone despite things starting and ending here and there, like school ending or a job ending or an app ending. Absolutely. So thing I was thinking about, uh, I've heard DHH talk about Rails itself and say, and, and he's acknowledged, what if this is the best thing I'm ever going to do? Yep. I mean, so I guess in the way it's a, somewhat of a counterpoint, right? Uh, pausing and saying that that might be the best I've got. And if you can recognize that and maybe, I mean, I think there's been a significant amount of luck as well and just good fortune and good timing and things like that with that have all contributed to Rails success. But But that also kind of contributes to this idea of, I don't know. Maybe that's the thing we should stick stick with, right? In term from from his perspective. So the kind of like similar to DHH, like I I thought those thoughts of you know that this is the best thing I'll ever do, and and then it ended. <laughs> and DHH is lucky because it didn't end for him, and he's very much in control of where it goes for Basecamp and for Rails. So it's good for him, and I think it's it's nice that he's able to have perspective on it. And people have helped him in the community have perspective on it because, of course, he gets tons of feedback from people in the community saying, Rails changed my life, right? 
And people have told me the same thing about code school. They're like, oh, you changed my life. I'm like, ah, it's not me directly, but it's us. And I think it's okay for it to keep going. It's okay for it to end. And I honestly think like it's hard to see right, where you are. It's back to the planning thing or seeing ahead. Like You don't know if it's going to be the best thing you do. You, it might feel that way. It definitely will feel that way if you're doing, if you create something like Rails. Yeah, yeah, I've had people tell me some of the same things about the podcast, that the podcast changed people's lives. And it's, it's interesting because in, in some sense, I kind of see where they're coming from. And in the other sense, it's like, yeah, but we just kind of gave you the tools. You went and did all the work, right? And so it's, it's yeah, where, where does it all come in? Where does it all come down? And yeah, so I, I think some credit is deserved. But on the other hand, I mean, people went and did the work. They, they figured it out. So I don't know. Yeah, I think to one of the original points was taking a lot of uh, satisfaction and fulfillment from the relationships that have been created and established along the way. That's where the real value is. Oh, yeah. That's absolutely true. As a Ruby developer, you've probably used Redis for queuing and caching. But if you're like me, you've never completely understood it. You just followed the tutorial to set it up and then hoped it'd stay up. Now that I'm building my own services for other people, I realize that you and I often don't have the desire or time to run an ops or DevOps team or do it yourself. Plus, since you're not a Redis expert, you're not exactly sure how to know what it's doing. That's why I love Redis Green. No setup. It runs on any AWS region I want so I can run it near me. And the tooling is amazing. I have to tell you about this feature, actually. It actually maps the memory you're using and tells you where all the memory is allocated. So this makes it really easy to see what's going on in your Redis setup. It also runs on AWS, so it scales easily and can alert you when it hits certain thresholds in performance or capacity. Sorry for going all fanboy on you, but I love this tool. Here's the thing. If you don't want to do ops or are already on Heroku or something, then use Redis Green for the rest. It's simple yet powerful. Check them out at redisgreen.net. All right, well, we're, we're kind of getting toward the end of our time, and, and I think we've kind of mined this topic for now. So uh, let's go ahead and do some picks. Nate, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. So I just recently listened to, just yesterday, the uh, keynote from RailsConf from DHH again, and it's, it's really just fantastic. It's a, it's a terrific exploration of what open source is, what it means to contribute to it. It's also kind of a love letter to Ruby. It was uh, just very well thought out and uh, highly recommend it if you have not seen or heard that keynote yet. Nice. I'm trying to get DHH on so we can talk about it. So we'll see what we can do there. All right. Hey, so I have, yeah, I have two picks. The first pick is I coughed up the money uh, after seeing the like six or $7,000 Apple display because I've been in the market for one, but I was holding off until I saw what Apple is going to do with their 6K. I'm like, screw that. I'm not going to buy that. So instead, I got the 5K screens from LG with the Thunderbolt 3 connector, and they are amazing. The quality on them and stuff are really nice. And... You know, after seeing a $6,000 price tag, 1000 bucks didn't seem as bad. And since I'm on my computer all freaking day and night, I figured that having a quality display was, you know, you know justifiable. And I had another pick. Um, I forget what it was, so I'll just go with that one. 
Wasn't there a bunch of blowback after WWDC when they announced the 6K monitors and how much they were going to cost? Well, it's the stand that actually made people go crazy. Oh, what, oh it was the stand? That's yeah, people, yeah, people almost booed. If you watch the keynote, it's very interesting because I <laughs> watched it late after everybody watched it, like almost a week after. And there's an audible like, what? When they announced a $1,000 stand for a five, four or $5,000 monitor? Because yeah. I think the best argument I've seen on the internet was someone said, like, just announce the whole thing. Say it's $6,000. People are going to be like, yeah, sure, it's Apple. But if you split the two, it just sounds insane. And uh, it, it makes sense. I, it almost would have been better if they had said it costs that much and people remove the stand in the cart and see, oh, wait, it's $1,000 cheaper. I think they would have, as a negation, it would have been, or subtraction would have been way better for people to discover. Heck, I'll just get a two by four and some nails. I mean, it kind of looks looks like that. (laughs) All right, Andrew, what are your picks? I usually pick technical picks, but today I have a more out there pick. I'm choosing wild sardines um, from Wild Planet. And I don't know if you guys like sardines at all, but I thought I hated them, but then I actually tried them and I actually really like them. And these are a little bit more expensive than your 99 cent can, but they're a lot better after having tried some of the lower quality ones. And they're super healthy for you as well. My nutritionist actually recommended them. So yeah, that's my pick. Nice. I only eat sardines to gross my kids out. So uh, I'm going to jump in with a few picks here. So uh, one is, is I'm currently at Velocity, which is a conference put on by O'Reilly. It's for DevOps. They combined it with the software architecture. And so anyway, I've been uh, talking to a bunch of people. I'm going to go meet a bunch of other people today. This is mostly uh, revolving around Adventures in DevOps, which is a show we're starting soon. So check that out. If you were a fan of the Food Fight Show, which is a DevOps show that was put on by Nell from uh, Chef and Nathan, who used to be at Chef and is now at Google, then you know Nell is helping us pull this one together and get it rolling. So I'm excited about that. And she's been on the show before too, so I'm going to pick that. I also want to shout out about Pluralsight. They've got a ton of great courses there. So uh, if you want to go check them out, you can. I have an affiliate link for them, but you don't have to use it. Just go check them out because they've got good stuff. I have a lot of friends who are Pluralsight authors as well. So that's definitely worth doing. Yeah. And then uh, two more picks really quickly, just because I'm excited. My wife texted me in the middle of the podcast. And she's like, check your email for your Father's Day present. And uh, she signed me up for ButcherBox. And ButcherBox is a box subscription where they send you meat. And I like meat. So, um, yeah, they, uh, they ship it out every, every month. You get a box full of meat. And, did you, uh, did you yeah. feel like you had to because of the sardine pick to balance things out a little bit? Uh, sar- sardines? I don't think of sardines as meat as much as I think of like steak and pork. Anyway. Like yeah. Is there a... Uh, Jelly of the Month Club? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. The National Lampins no. joke there. It wouldn't shock me at all at this point if there's a jelly box. But yeah, so uh, yeah, I'm excited about that too. So uh, I'm going to pick that. And then when I came out here, I booked my hotel through hotels.com. So if you're looking for a way to save some money on a hotel, that's a great way to go too. Olivier, what are your picks? So I, I'm going to start with uh, a counterpoint because I have to. I'm a meat eater. I'm a carnivore. I'm a French person. Therefore, I eat like milk and all the things, dairy, everything. But because I like my planet and uh, I'm, I'm trying to be kind of conscious, I actually made uh, this going to be kind of like a half self-pick. There's two things I don't like is waste 
and uh, like needless waste. And the other one is like, if I can reduce my impact or I can help reduce my impact on, on like just crap everywhere. I try to, to not drink milk if I don't have to. So if I need to consume like a whole glass of milk, I'm actually drinking something called Oatly, which is stupidly good oat milk or oat, I don't know, liquid if you want to be contentious. It just has exactly what none of the uh, substitutes to milk have, which is like a little bit of fatty like content in it in it to make it like substantial. And it works pretty well with coffee. There's a barista edition for people who like to, to use whole milk with their coffee. That's just thicker and it works better for that. And actually, I'm a coffee nerd. And when I stretch milk, I can make it look like wet paint and it's beautiful and it's delicious and it mixes in perfectly. Oatly is a little bit more like 2% milk in that, in that regard. But it's super good and um, fewer farting cows. So it helps to kind of reduce that a little bit. And I again, I love cheese. I'm never going to get rid of cheese. But I can reduce milk consumption a little bit because milk is like not really that. When you kind of try other things, you realize it's not that amazing. And then there's, uh, there's something I haven't tried, but I kind of want to try. I love ribeye specifically. It's my favorite cut. But when I eat burgers, I'm kind of curious, like ground meat in general is, is there's a lot of research to try to make alternative ground meat. And there's Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat. If you have one around you, just as an intellectual curiosity, try it out. Because I've discovered that I, I don't like alternative fake meat stuff, but things that are good and that you use to, to replace ingredients with, not just the, to pretend that they're meat, but to, to be like, hey, this is also good. A lot of the, the, the Impossible Burger, Beyond Meat, all that stuff is, is pea-based. So this is pea protein. And pea has kind of like a dirt, kind of like similar irony taste as meat, red meat. It's not going to be a, a substitute, but it might be good, like a legit good thing to eat. So that's one thing I wanted to mention. So in the, in the wastefulness, kind of like sustainability angle, I made a little website for Earth Day called horizonzerowaste.com. If you get the pun, you're cool. If you don't, it's fine. And it's basically the stupidest little front end. Uh, it's just an HTML repo. It's actually Markdown. I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, there's a, at the bottom, you can see there's a, a link to the GitHub uh, repo. And it's just a list of things you can do as alternatives to things that are wasteful. So for instance, bottled water is just straight up, it makes no sense. Like just there, there's so many ways to drink water in metal bottles like this Corksicle bottle that I have. It's an Orlando-based company. They make super good. Zojirushi is a Japanese company that makes it really easy to drink from mugs that you don't have to unscrew and things like this. Carrying around a, a water mug or a water jug or anything like that is just like makes a ton of sense. There's these machines in the airports everywhere where you can like get filtered water now these days. So it's just like everywhere. So that's one of the examples. There's plenty of things like that. It's not just all about um, straws. There's a lot more stuff that you can avoid doing. It's stupidly easy for most of them. So I encourage you to just like type in anything that you want to try to be less wasteful about in the little type of keyword box at the top, anything plastic. You can see alternatives like metal. Metal's cool. You can smelt it and uh, you can turn it into something else. Plastic, not so cool. A great example is dishwasher detergent. It comes into big jugs that are basically full of water. Powder detergent works exactly the same because you turn it into water with your dishwasher. And it also means that people are not shipping boxes of water around the world. So it helps. Now I have more techie picks. I'm just going to go through them really quick. I'm a, an amateur photographer. And for years, I try to fight uh, Apple Photos or like work with it. And probably they're going to improve it with the new uh, macOS version. But it's 
it's still not quite good enough for the kinds of insane amounts of photos that I take. I take uh, a lot of photos that end up being like 250,000 shots in 15 years or something like that. So it takes a lot of space. I want it synced across devices. Turns out Adobe was there a while ago. They're, they're still there. And Lightroom CC is one of those things where I'm not paid to say this, but as someone who's just a, a software nitpicker and a photographer, They've kicked ass on Lightroom CC. It's efficient. It uses SQLite as a kind of like a, a local storage database, but it's all kind of like uh, canonical in the cloud based, which means it's always synced extremely fast to a lot of devices. It has mach- machine learning search, like I mentioned in the pre-call, where you can find like photos of coffee mugs or photos of rugs when you're looking for a thing that you haven't categorized in a, in a thing, and it works surprisingly well. It's fast. The editing is seamless you can do a lot of things with the keyboard it's it's really impressive and i think they have like cheap or free tier plans for 30 days or something like that where you can try it out i i iphone app mac os app and pretty much every platform even the web app is great what's your preferred camera my camera is nuts so this is not a recommendation because most sane people would not spend that much money on a camera so i have a, a sony rx1 r2 uh, which is a full frame fixed lens camera that's a 35 millimeter lens f2.0 uh, Zeiss lens on a basically the same sensor as the um, uh, mirrorless a7R2 by Sony, which is the, the big fancy Sony DSLR, basically. It's not DSLR because no mirror, but it, it's one of the best there. The, the sensor is the big thing, the big ticket item. It's just an incredible 50 megapixel sensor or 47 megapixel sensor. And it's a full frame camera, so you get all that you know soft focus stuff and and bokeh, bokeh, and yeah. So if you like photos and stuff like that, it's it's good stuff. Very cool. All right, if people want to find you online, Olivier, where do they go? So o l i v i e r l a c a n dot com. That's my email too. Hi at me. Uh, that's the same for Twitter. O l i o. Wow, I'm trying to spell my name, and I'm like, you can find me uh, if you put Olivier and Ruby. In the, in the Googles, you can probably find me on GitHub, same thing. And I do a bunch of open source stuff, like keep a change log. And uh, yeah, that's me. Nice. All right, well, thanks for coming and talking to us. Thank you for having me. All right, well, we're going to wrap this one up, folks, and we will be back next week. All right, bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.